To me, the, the most actionable insight here is that it clarifies one of the weaknesses of that model. Um, and I really think adds new imperative to the entire industry re-examining this choice, at least the, uh, at least the, the sort of like wholesale complete embrace of this one streaming model um, at the expense of another that makes questions like this really, really easy to answer. Hey guys, welcome to Hot Music Charts, where we pull back the current on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Jason, you'll hear from our other co-host Rucker soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we chat with Andrew Thompson, editor and founder of Components, a media and culture publication focused on data journalism. Originally from California, now living in Philadelphia, Andrew received a degree in political science and government from Temple University before moving into journalism. Becoming increasingly interested in data and data science, Andrew eventually became the data editor and audience development manager at design software startup Ceros, and then the editorial director of video streaming search engine Flixed. After a couple of years in New York City, he moved back home to Philly, taking components from a side project to his full-time endeavor. Since 2018, Components has been covered and or cited in Mashable, Vice, we were lucky enough to feature some of his research on our blog in an article he wrote called What Spotify Follower Ratio Tells Us About Artist Growth and Fan Engagement. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Andrew Thompson. Hey guys, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Absolutely. So before we get into the article, I wanted to um, get a background on uh, components a little bit. So we first came across components through a band camp study you did at the end of 2020, where you looked at genre tags of a million items on Bandcamp by city. Can you give a brief overview of that study and what the major takeaways for you were? Yeah. So um, Components is in many ways a an exploration of how to merge data and what I might just call non-quantitative thinking, which is a long way of saying writing, but um, kind of fusing different forms together in a way that doesn't handicap either, but kind of augments both. Um, and in the case of um, the, the Bandcamp piece, uh, the first of, of two Bandcamp pieces that we did, um, the experiment there was to take, um, was to see what we could do with a, with a map of all the Bandcamp keywords that are attached to albums um, and kind of what it means if you did that. So to zoom out a little bit, um, we scraped, um, about a million, at that point, the piece came out in December. By the time we put it out, we'd scraped uh, about a million item pages, so tracks and albums from Bandcamp, and mapped a couple different metrics um, based on the genre tags that appeared in an artist city. So for example, um, I'm in Philadelphia right now. Uh, if, you know, punk uh, was a genre tag that an artist used on one of their albums in Philadelphia. The question is how many artists um, in Philadelphia were using that tag and how popular was punk relative 
in Philadelphia relative to say Mexico City or New York or something. And so what we looked at with that map and, and you can go to it on components.1, um, it's the, I believe, second piece down on the homepage right now. Um, what you end up with is this network graph for each city of which genres are connected to one another. So, you know, if punk connects to noise, connects to rock and so on and so forth. It's just a network graph. And what you end up with is both the uh, popularity of that genre, such so as the sheer size, um, as well as um, a metric showing how common it is relative to these other cities. And I think the idea, um, to answer your question more directly, in that piece, the, the takeaway in that piece was kind of that there is a, there's a very sharp distinction between how genre is conceived on Bandcamp versus how it's conceived on Spotify. Because on Bandcamp, which is in kind of every conceivable way, um, a much more bottom-up platform than Spotify or Apple or, or the other really dominant streaming platforms. Um, artists get to choose their own, uh, their own genre tags. And so that actually creates a lot of um, data processing challenges because, you know, for nothing, if, if, uh, you know, for no other reason than you'll sometimes see techno spelled, you know, the normal English way, um, one place and then techno, T-E-K-N-O, um, somewhere else. And so there's a lot, lot to sort of be reconciled there. But I think the ultimate idea was that um, it is, you're looking not just at what genres are, are common in cities as much as you are the self-conception of music in respective cities. So um, for example, in Mexico City, uh, it was either German or Germany was a very popular um, genre tag. Not because there are necessarily a lot of Germans living in Mexico City, but because I think a lot of people or you know, a significant number of people in, um, in the scene in Mexico City see themselves kind of culturally aligned with, with German music, with German club music. Um, and so I think the piece ultimately became an exploration of these genres and these tags as much as the process of trying to impose structure on categories that are inherently ambiguous because they are not, because they're not imposed from the top down, you are, whatever order and sense you impose on them is in some way going to be artificial. And there is a certain impossibility of ever doing that perfectly, but you can still do it to an extent that you can kind of make some meaning from it, if that kind of makes sense. You mentioned that second Bandcamp study that you did in March, this time looking at sales data. Why did you decide to look at Bandcamp again? And what were the major takeaways from that study? So the piece we did, the first piece we did, the reason we looked at Bandcamp at all was because uh, we realized we could. We realized that Bandcamp publishes, if you've ever gone to bandcamp.com to their homepage, they publish every single sale made on their platform and you can get that data. You can scrape the data coming in on their homepage. And so as with a lot of components pieces, the project began just because we identified a large data set that was able to be analyzed. And the reason there are two pieces, you know, we could do 10 pieces on Bandcamp data. We have so much of it. Um, and there's, there's so many parameters within the data set that you can look at. Um, 
but the reason we we did two is because they felt really distinct. So the first piece was this map, uh, this genre map um, that really is, you know, it's one visualization and um, focuses on on you know this this interactive graphic. And the second is looking at the actual economics of the platform. Um, and in that case, the piece began really with this question of what variables are associated with people paying above the minimum, right? So to give context to this, um, some, some broader context, Bandcamp, back in, in 2006, um, there was this kind of juncture in how the music industry was going to respond to Napster and BitTorrent and uh, you know, piracy. Um, the first option launched in 2006 and was Spotify and it was in Sweden and then finally became the uh, you know, billion dollar public company it is today. Um, and that option as everyone is familiar with was that you pay X dollars per month um, and you get access to unlimited streaming, sort of unlimited rights to listen to the music, not to don't download or own the music, but to listen to it. That was option, that was option one. Option two came the next year when Radiohead released In Rainbows under a pay what you want format. And um, for anyone who wasn't around at that time or, or forgets about that event, um, this was at the time this this really unprecedented and kind of unthinkable option um, to the record companies because at that point there was still album sales and there was illegal piracy and so the idea really either of these options either Spotify or the the Radiohead option were sort of outside the normal mode of thinking but this idea that you would you would give people the option to pay nothing. Um, was this it was kind of a, a test of uh, a test of economic cynicism. And um, I forget what the exact what the exact sales numbers were, how much money they brought in, but it was it was somewhere in the seven figures. Um, and I I recall, I think I remember reading that they made more money on in Rainbows than any album they've like ever sold or something. Um, I would have to double check that. but Regardless, it was it was really successful, um, and so Bandcamp became really of the two of the two models. Everyone has kind of gone to the streaming model, the Spotify model, this fixed fee for unlimited listening. But Bandcamp was, for the most part, and I think really, I, I don't even know if there are others. It's the only extant version of the in rainbows model that decided to take that pay what you want model and turn it into a music platform turned it into sort of the response to to uh BitTorrent. i guess napster was long gone by then um but to BitTorrent and piracy and so the study we did on components looked at about seven million sales that went through the the uh, Bandcamp uh, sales feed that were made on Bandcamp between September and the end of December of last year. And it was really an attempt to look at that model and to answer the question, if people can pay whatever they want, and on Bandcamp, there are often price floors. Usually there's you know a minimum. They sell physical items on Bandcamp. I believe it's the largest seller of physical music in 
the world at this point, um, or at least one of them. Um, what are the factors associated? If, if there's not just a fixed fee, then what are the factors associated with people spending more or less money on something on Bandcamp? And so that piece was kind of an exploratory, exploratory data analysis um, of looking at, you know, how does this, how is this affected by geography? How is this affected by, you know, by the buyer and seller's geography? How is it affected by something uh, being a physical object instead of a digital object? How do the genre tags, um, how do they modulate that figure? And the conclusion that, that we arrived at is that there's no one answer that determines whether or not someone's going to spend more or less money on something on Bandcamp or be more or less generous. There's this really complex interplay of factors um, that, that make up that number. And in that way, Bandcamp has a much more, on the one hand, a much more simple business model. It's a much more simple business than Spotify, but captures far more complexity than something like Spotify or the other streaming services do because those factors can interplay with one another and affect one another. And um, because people can spend more than a fixed amount of money on the platform. So with Spotify, you can spend $10 a month on the platform and that's it. With Bandcamp, you can theoretically spend an unlimited uh, amount of money on the platform. Um, and because you can do that, because there's both more variables at play with one another and because there's no limit, the conclusion that we arrived at in the study is that it is a, it's a superior business model. And uh, I should add, it's because it's a superior business model that Bandcamp is a profitable company and Spotify is not a profitable company. So the, the piece was effectively um, an attempt to look at why that dichotomy between the two platforms exists. Hmm. So how would you describe components to someone who's totally not familiar with it at all? And why did you, why did you found it in the first place? Yeah, well, um, like, uh, like a lot of projects that get off the ground, it was uh, powered by some degree of animus towards other things. Um, I think that I was living in New York at the time. Um, I was not having a good time. Um, and it seemed like there was, I, I, was, I was working at Seros at the time, actually. Um, and I was doing kind of data content, data journalism. I don't know if you would really want to call it journalism if, if it's earned that, uh, if, if it's has earned that badge. But um, I was leading their data content and it, it seemed like there was, there were kind of two unreconciled worlds. There was, there were the people doing data stuff and then everyone who rejected it, um, who rejected that was also, they also seemed to reject empiricism. So like all the people who were aesthetically most interesting were also inclined to not root their thinking in any kind of empirical method. And so Components was kind of this attempt to not do something that was aesthetically cringe, but also to, to ground ideas in at least partially verifiable conclusions and to sort of take 
the idea of an exploratory data analysis in which you are iteratively exploring, you know, raw material and figuring out what it means. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of so. To answer your question, how do I describe it? I describe components as um, a research group and publication that assembles and analyzes large data sets. But of course, to that answer, there's you know a lot to unpack there. But you like bridge the sort of aesthetic and the empirical. I, well. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into this most recent article that you wrote. Uh, what Spotify follower ratio tells us about artist growth and fan engagement. So walk us through first, what, what is Spotify follower ratio or as it's known on chartmetric conversion rate? Um, and from, I guess, from a more theoretical perspective, what does a low Spotify follower ratio suggest and what does a high one suggest? Theoretically, it indicates that you have a particularly active listenership. So the idea is that if you have a million people listening to you, but only two of them are actually following you, um, then they're hearing you, but you don't have this kind of, whether you want to call it fandom or audience or however you kind of conceive of it, that you can then monetize or leverage however you want down the line. Um, and the reason this is important um, now, I should I should add, is that because everyone went with the Spotify business model, because they chose the Spotify over the in rainbows business model, uh, over the pay what you want, Bandcamp business model, people aren't really making much money per stream anymore. And this is something that a lot of people have known for years. The music industry is obviously known for years. It's becoming more common knowledge among just people who use Spotify that um, there's not a lot of money coming through per stream. The last figure I saw was, you know, it's a third of a cent per stream. And so because there's so little money coming from the actual listenership, the fandom theoretically becomes important because it becomes an avenue for you to actually make money through, you know, brand partnerships or, um, you know, merch or however it is that you end up monetizing a kind of, uh, whether it's an identification or, you know, a particular appreciation that a listener has for an artist, it ultimately becomes the way that you make the money from the artist, or at least a primary way that you do that. Mm -hmm. So in the piece, you highlight the differences uh, in Spotify follow ratio, this, this, this metric you're talking about, uh, the differences between Ed Sheeran, Huey Lewis in the news, Gunna, which by the way, is a track I would love to hear one day <laughs> and what that suggests about how we interpret this particular number. So can you actually break that, uh, you know, the components that go into it, you know, followers, which I think you've already done, but can you talk a little bit about monthly listeners for those who maybe are not familiar with that particular part of the ratio? Monthly listeners is the number of unique people that listen to an artist every month. So um, if one person listens to Huey Lewis in the news five times, you have one monthly listener. If five people listen to Huey Lewis in the news, you have five unique listeners. Uh, it, it's you know kind of as simple as that. Yeah, that's that's totally it. Um, and it being a running twenty-eight day thing, not like a calendar. Cool. So. You talk about something called fandom hypothesis in your article. It's how you open the article up, which I really love. Uh, you know, a lot of times when people talk about music and data, the first thing is about stream count. And I think what your hypothesis 
starts to address is that maybe that's not the only thing one should worry about. So talk a little bit more about phantom uh, hypothesis as you, as you word it, and how is this ratio supposed to fit into it? I think the idea of, of the phantom hypothesis, which is hardly my you know idea, um, but it's just that idea that what matters is not passive engagement, it's active engagement. It's it's a a wrapped audience that you can leverage leverage through other channels that has become more important as um, as things become more difficult to monetize through just raw listenership. At the same time, it's also something that is occurring um, throughout the cultural economy, particularly in the U.S. I don't know to what extent it exists in in other countries, but this idea of fandom has become really. And by the way, one of the um, one of the uh, components people, Kyle Pauletta, wrote a great piece on fandom for the Baffler uh, one or two years ago. Um, that is really lays out this, this idea well that that people you know in film for example people are no longer making or i mean they are but it's becoming more common particularly among these these large media companies to not make one off works but to make works that link together in this vast world building exercise and what you're doing in that case by building the world you're kind of cultivating these citizens of that world, um, which you can kind of synonymize with fans, right? And so this idea of fandom in, in these other industries is that once you have someone who feels like they are kind of a citizen of that world, whether it's, you know, Star Wars world or Marvel world or, or whatever it is, um, there are these other, there are these other kind of points of engagement beyond the work itself that they identify with because in being fans, they are not just experiencing something and then leaving. They're kind of always experiencing it every day, right? And obviously that depends, uh, you know, they experience it to a greater or lesser degree based on how, how deep that fanaticism is uh, or that fandom is. Um, but that's the idea that you, you, uh, you inaugurate people into this world and, and their, uh, their engagement with with the IP or the brand or whatever, you know, in the, in the case of Star Wars and Marvel, um, doesn't end once the film ends. Spotify popularity is another metric you talk about. And one of the first visualizations in your article compares what's called Spotify popularity index against Spotify follower ratio, which results in this sort of U-shape curve with the high ratio for lesser known artists, but also a high ratio for, you know, superstars, essentially. So can you first explain what Spotify popularity index is, and then talk about what that U-shape means and why that trend might exist? Yeah, the Spotify popularity index is uh, Spotify's internal metric for basically how big artists are relative to one another within the Spotify catalog. So Last I checked, Justin Bieber was 100, and there is a, a fixed number of people for each kind of bin in the, the popularity score. So Justin Bieber's 100. There's only one person who's 100. The next is, I don't know, it's, you know, you get to your Taylor Swift and your Ariana Grande and so on down the line until you get to zero, 
where it is, you know, your friend's band. The U-shaped curve effectively says that for the people at the lowest end of popularity, your friend's band, they have a really high follower ratio, right? They, ha- they have this really high number of, uh, of, this, of this metric that theoretically you want, right? And that number then goes down. The more popular an artist becomes, the more their follower ratio, uh, the more their follower ratio drops, uh, you know, conceivably because more people are, are sort of discovering them um, who are not, you know, their friends and family and so on. And then that number eventually, as the, as the, the artist um, ascends into stardom, that number goes back up. There are a number of reasons why you might see this U-shaped curve or why you do see this U-shaped curve. Um, at the low end, I, you know, I, I think the most reasonable hypothesis for why you see it is that um, you know, if, I, if I release uh, an album, right, and I just give it to you guys, um, and you listen to it, and you know me, and you hit follow because you want to see, you know, A, you want to see what I release in the future, and B, it would be rude for you not to follow me on Spotify if I sent both you guys my album. Um, you know, you're probably not listening to that album over and over and over and over again, right? But you're not going to unfollow me either because people generally don't unfollow people on Spotify. It's kind of like an app. So once you have an app, that app is in your phone forever. I have, you know, like 50 apps on my phone that I will never open again. And Spotify followers are actually kind of similar. So like, even if you follow me, you're not going to keep coming back to my album. So what ends up happening, I think, on that lower end is I release an album. I send it to all my friends. They listen to it a couple times. They never listen to it again. Um, or maybe one or two of them do. But now I have like 50 followers or 100 followers. So that ratio, um, that, that, follower to, uh, that follower to listener ratio is like, you know, 50, which for the larger artists, for the most successful artists we're, we're looking at is like, you know, if you get like a, a one to one ratio, that's kind of like, could theoretically like what the max should be, right? Um, so on the low end, they have this ratio that's really, really high, but act- actually shows this, this, um, this kind of inertia. Um, as it goes down, it becomes less inert, right? Because it's not just your friends and family listening, it's new people listening. Um, and then it begins to, and I know I'm kind of repeating myself, it begins to dip up again when you are constantly introduced to people, but you are so, you, you, have, you have sort of penetrated people's awareness so thoroughly that nobody is not aware of you anymore, right? Like nobody is not aware of Ed Sheeran. Nobody is just being introduced to Ed Sheeran for the first time. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm just, just discovering this guy, Ed Sheeran, like, oh, like follow him on Spotify or whatever. It's, I don't know exactly why there are new people following Ed Sheeran on Spotify who haven't. I would guess that it's because when you are a zero popularity artist who's handing out your album to friends and family and all the people who have heard you know you, once you reach stardom, it's similar. All the people who have heard you know you. And so the U-shaped curve happens because they're actually, at least this is what I think is happening, 
because there is this kind of like metric of familiarity that it's following. And so what you're looking at is this kind of personal or quasi-personal familiarity between listener and artist that once you get to, uh, you know, Justin Bieber level um, kind of circles back around like this, like this Ouroboros. Right. So uh, a consequence of that is you have this sort of, I guess we could say unfamiliarity between around, I don't know, 20 to 80 or 30 to 70 Spotify popularity, this sort of like middle ground where Spotify follower ratio seems to level out at around 0.2 or so. Do you think this is where uh, Spotify follower ratio might be the most informative in terms of understanding an artist's growth and fan engagement? Yeah. So this is what we ended up doing in the in the piece is if you if you're looking at um, if you want to see what kinds of artists have lower or higher follower ratios, and you just kind of take averages across the whole data set, right, from zero popularity to 100, or if you were just to look at, you know, the bottom 20%, what you might end up inadvertently doing is looking at artists that don't really take off. So, um, you know, let's say you, uh, let's say you, you're looking for genres um, of, of music that are, that command a particularly high follower ratio. Um, and, you know, you, you sort of look just at the bottom 20%. And it turns out that, you know, Yacht Rock has like the highest follower ratio of any genre. Um, it could, you know, a possible explanation for that is that Yacht Rock just hasn't really broken into um, this these upper echelons or isn't in the process of breaking into upper echelons of um, of listenership. So, you know, the, the idea of the piece uh, of, of the study, you know, we're publishing was that in order to narrow down that that question, you the best area to look at is probably in that dip of the U curve, right? Between, um, you know, between kind of 20 and 60 or, or 30 and 60, um, where, a, where in the aggregate, it's at the lowest, but actually where it's in the aggregate at the lowest, if you find the highest there, then you kind of, um, you're better able to sort of separate signal and noise um, because you've controlled for, things not just being high due to their popularity. And that's what we ended up doing is looking at the lowest popularity dip in that U-curve for, for which genres were, were highest. So we're going to get into the artists and, and the genres themselves, but you, know, you did look at you know, the highest Spotify follower ratios and to some extent, which have the lowest ratios. Can you explain actually for, you know, the data analysts who are listening, you know, what, how you, what was your methodology for that? How did you go about doing that process? Yeah. So what I did is I took 10,000 artists for each popularity score uh, where available. So, you know, 10,000 for popularity zero, 10,000 for popularity one and, and so on um, until, you know, I, there weren't that many available. So if there were, you know, 10 artists available for popularity 91, then I took 10. Um, and these were every artist in the data set has, uh, you know, it's ratio, it's genres, um, and then, you know, it's country and so on. A lot of things I didn't look at for, for this study. 
Um, and then that was all put into, all of this was done with Python and Jupyter um, and was just a lot of, you know, pandas, data manipulation, and, uh, you know, uh, just kind of the the basic the basic Python stack, uh, but even more basic because you know we weren't doing something super complex. A lot of a lot of this stuff, and this was true of the Bandcamp piece for components. Um, there's a lot you can glean from just looking at basic summary statistics, and um, you know in this case throughout this this whole study on on follower ratios, there really wasn't anything more complex than just you know, grouping and averaging or grouping and taking a median. Um, and I think we found some stuff that was pretty interesting with, with that really, uh, with that really basic approach, but, um, yeah, it was just a combination of the chart metric API, uh, a Jupyter notebook, um, and then some, some basic pandas functions. We'll let people Google that if they want to figure out what <laughs> pandas are. Um, so for the artists that you found, that had the highest Spotify follower ratios. Um, any of the, those artists seem surprising to you that happened to have the highest one? And were there some that you expected maybe to be there that weren't? Yeah, so a few of them, um, the top three I didn't know about. So uh, I don't know how to say his name, but Arijit Singh. Um, and then uh, I believe this is a Portuguese name that I can't pronounce. Um, and then Jorge and... Mateus, none of those I knew, right? And um, I looked into it. I believe Arijit is, um, he, he's an Indian singer. Um, and from what I understand, Indian pop music works a little differently where you, there's like, there, there isn't the same concept of a pop star in India as there is in the U.S., is at least this is the information relayed to me by an Indian friend. I have not verified whether or not this is true, um, but it's hard to it, it's hard to so for these top three at least, uh, you know, one of them being India, the other two being, uh, I believe, uh, Brazilian. It's hard to know what those ratios mean without being aware of of their cultural context. Um, but for the others, like, you know, after that, the, the, you know, first person you get to who I'm familiar with is Ed Sheeran, um, and he has a 1.5 uh, Spotify follower ratio. Um, it could be, the thing is that it, th these numbers could be surprising or unsurprising based on how you frame them. So I am surprised that Ed Sheeran would have such a, such an attentive audience just because Ed Sheeran to me is like, you know, he's like the guy on it writing. Like, I don't know, like, I don't understand that fandom of, of actively engaging and feeling a connection to the guy at Rite Aid, but people do. On the other hand, this is something really important to talk about with this data um, that we actually haven't yet, that the problem with looking at just the ratio by itself is that these numbers fluctuate over time, right? So keep in mind that the ratio is followers over listeners, right? That's the conversion rate. But if people get a welter of new followers, if they have this windfall because they've been put in some playlist, if they just released a single, um, you know, then their listeners might shoot up and the ratio might shoot down. And for a given moment in time, it might seem like they have no 
they have no fandom. They have no audience um, at all. Uh, on the other hand, if they've built up a, you know, if they've released a lot of music, they've gotten a bunch of followers, and then they don't put out music for a while, or they're not not included in a new playlist, or any of the things that introduced uh, that introduce artists to new people, then the ratio might go up. Right? This is the case with um, with people kind of at the lower end of the uh, of that U curve we were talking about, and this is also why people in the middle end of that U curve, uh, the, or sorry, the, the middle part of that U curve tend to have lower ratios on average is because they are the ones most likely to kind of be being introduced. They're, they're the ones most likely to be introduced to new people without having a, a large built-in following already. So all of which is to say, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, um, that this is why the, the graph in this piece where we're looking at the top artists is kind of, it, it serves this, um, it serves this this purpose in exploratory data analysis where it is part of the process of looking at data, but it, it's far from conclusive. So we can't say just by looking at this that like Ed Sheeran, in fact, does have this crazy fanatical audience. You can surmise that looking outside of the data and looking at, you know, either other metrics or just, uh, you know, going online and getting a sense of things. Um, but that ratio isolated at a single point in time does not tell us that. And that's why we have to go on to uh, answering these other questions. Mm -hmm. Just to circle back real quick on Arijit Singh, um, I'll also claim ignorance, but um, he is an extremely popular Indian playback singer. Apparently, Playback singer. That's the, that's the term I was looking yeah, for. Wikipedia is telling us a uh, king of playback singing. So he's been acting mm -hmm. for quite some time. And it would make sense at least to, to further kind of like describe this ratio is you already mentioned the follower being like this thing that usually gets touched once and never gets unfollowed, at least on Spotify. So someone you could understand being massively popular like he is, um, will get all the follows just from the name recognition alone. But monthly listeners is something that is quite temperamental, um, at least relatively to follower count. So it can go up and go down, you know, did they release something recently? And maybe at the time that you put the data, maybe his monthly listener account just happened to be a little bit lower, which would probably make his ratio go up. Um, on top of the fact that if you think about even other DSPs, you know, are Indian music fans listening on Spotify as much as they are on maybe like one of the South Asian DSPs like Geo7 or something like that, which who knows, maybe, maybe not. But just to go to show that the ratio needs context, I think is what I'm trying to say. Well, that's a good point. Let me actually look. Let me look at something. Okay. So, yeah. So to your point, you can you can follow an artist without subscribing to Spotify, right? You can, you can follow an artist on the free plan. If you do that, you're not able to listen to that artist at will. And so this actually gets to the question of, that, that I kind of look at at the very end, which is this, this idea of the behavior of following about, you know, there being different reasons people follow, there being kind of an instinct. But the point is that, you probably have, um, in fact, I know you have far, far fewer Spotify subscribers in India, paid subscribers, than you do in the U.S. And so this is an important piece of economic context for why um, Arijit might have you know, an extremely high ratio, uh, being that people just simply don't, you know, they're not listening to him on command in the same way because they can't. 
So getting to genres, metal and K-pop, regardless of Spotify popularity, tended to exhibit the highest ratios. And then classical and EDM tended to exhibit the lowest ratios. So talk a little bit about that because I find that like super interesting. Yeah, I find it really interesting too. Um, so at the low end, um, at the low end, it, it, at least for, you know, when we say classical, we're actually talking about really a, a kind of large set of, uh, of orchestral or, or compositional music. So, um, you know, the, the smallest, the, the genres with these smallest ratios, and by the way, Again, this is just looking at uh, popularity bins uh, of you know thirty to forty, forty to fifty, fifty to sixty, um, and you know looking at them both individually and and sort of that entire span. Um, the lowest ratio that we found, um, so yeah, the the lowest genres, or rather the genres with the lowest ratios. Uh, in other words, people who um, have high listeners and low followers are uh, orchestral at number one, Hollywood, Broadway, classical performance. And by the way, these genres can co-occur with one another. They can be the same artist. Um, then you get to show tunes, deep tropical house, uh, you know, deep groove house, classical opera, and so on. So, um, and this is also only looking at the 200 most common genres in the whole data set. So, um, you know, if there is a genre that appears in this data set one time or two times, I don't think there, there would be, um, because I don't think, you know, again, because Bandcamp and Spotify are not the same, there could be a genre tag in Bandcamp that's there only once, but with Spotify, there wouldn't be. Um, but regardless, this is just looking at the 200 common, most common genres. Um, I think that it, at the very, you know, in the case of orchestral and compositional and classical music, um, my guess is that people don't really engage with with the individual um, in the same way as they do in other types of music. There isn't the same sense of celebrity, and there isn't the same kind of self conscious. Um, there is a, you know, whether or not there is a kind of lifestyle attached to the listenership of that music, the self-conception of that lifestyle doesn't work in quite the same way. And so when people listen to, uh, you know, I'm looking at these genres now, when they, when they listen to the soundtrack, uh, if they were, if they were, you know, if they're listening to the, like the Cruella soundtrack, they're, they're probably not following. I don't even know who you, who, the artist is billed as in that, in that case, but they are not listening to the composer for the sake of listening to the composer. But the point is they're like listening to the soundtrack to listen to the movie soundtrack. And that's it. That's kind of where the engagement with that work ends, right? It doesn't extend to, um, you know, the individual artists or the individual composers behind the movie. Why that is, it, you know, it's kind of self-explanatory, um, but it's also kind of hard to explain at the same time. Um, and also with other kinds of classical music, it's like, is there a point to following Bach on Spotify? That seems weird to me that you would like follow Bach and like wait for 
uh, you know, a, a symphony to drop a new rendition of, you know, mass and B minor or something. It's like the, the, the mode of listening is just very, very different. Fandom doesn't really work in the same way. It means something different. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, that's kind of the, the best answer I've arrived at for why uh, orchestral and Hollywood and um, show tunes are so low on that list. Uh, again, because there's there's an engagement with a specific work, not a specific artist. Um, with Deep Tropical House and Deep Groove House, um, my uh, you know Progressive Electro House, um, Deep House. That's more puzzling to me because um, you know on the one hand there's a lot of artists, there's a lot of house artists who do command um, devoted audiences and, and who do, um, you know, who do have followings and, and so on, to what extent they fall specifically in the kind of like deep tropical house, deep groove house buckets, I don't know. Um, yeah, the, I'll, I'll add this. In the Bandcamp study, we found and this is, we didn't dig super hard into this part because there were so many metrics and so many statistics flying around. But one thing I remember from the data I saw in Bandcamp is that EDM did seem to garner less generosity. So if you have, a, uh, if you have an item priced at $5, you're looking at generosity. In that case, you know, generosity is anything above $5, right? So if somebody pays $5.50, they're being generous. Um, and so you can measure the percent of people who are being generous and, and how generous they're being. I recall EDM being all kinds of EDM as being among the keywords. If you kind of disaggregate EDM into different, you know, keywords like we're doing right now, um, it is something that seemed to garner the least amount of generosity for, the various uh for the various keywords and um i still can't really figure out why that is i mean i can i could possibly guess that even if even if there are edm artists who are you know anywhere from celebrities to people who uh you know uh artists that people follow on soundcloud to artists who people buy music from off Bandcamp. There are plenty of EDM artists that I like actively, you know, love um, that I, I, whether you want to call me a fan or something else that I am, but I do kind of wonder if, you know, the purpose of EDM is that it's, um, it's music you dance to, right? It's music that is kind of there while you're doing something else, while you're at a club, while you are, um, at a party. And so it's possible that in this, you see EDM kind of decentering the artist a little bit. I don't know. The only reason I'm saying that is because I don't know what else could possibly account. I mean, what do you guys think accounts for it? Like, how would you explain this? If you had to guess, I haven't asked you anything this whole time. And actually I should be. Why do you think this is happening? Oh, turning the tables. Uh, I mean, it could be like a playlisting thing. If you're being listened to on playlists, you're going to get 
monthly listeners, but you're maybe not going to get that extra step of the follower. Um, and so with very context dependent genres like EDM and classical, even whether you're like working out to this music or you're studying to this music, just the nature of the listening, I think, especially on streaming services could explain that to some extent. Sorry. Um, yeah, I just want to add that, you know, I, this is actually one of the things I really like about electronic music, because while there is certainly a reverence for the DJ or the producer, for sure, there's definitely an emphasis on like the hour long experience, like being like, you know, in a sweaty club for an hour, two hours, three hours, or like watching, you know, like a spin in or like a, you know, one of those like, you know, YouTube videos that are like, you know, that long as well. And like the whole set. And so there's like a less of an emphasis on like, you know, a single, you know, cause there could be supposedly like 50 different, you know, artists on that entire, you know, experience. And so there's less of an emphasis on, you know, following an artist and more about um, either the DJ that put it together or just that experience of like that whole, it's like a longer term experience as opposed to like a very singles minded mentality, which would, I would imagine, encourage a, a art follower artist behavior. Yeah, I would guess that it's some combination of both of what you're saying. Um, and the, the problem I have with uh, the problem I have with relying on on Jason, what you're saying, and really what I was saying too, which which again is you know, I said is really the only thing I can think of. The problem I have with it being super explanatory or, or fully explaining this result is that I've seen and listened to so many DJs that I then follow, right? Like there's a DJ who plays a set that I love and I follow them uh, somewhere, you know, on, on SoundCloud or whatever, or there is um, music that is in, you know, that I discover on NTS or whatever, I follow them. Um, so I can't, if, I'm not saying it's it, that the, what I'm saying and what you're saying is wrong. It's that it's hard for me to like square it with how I personally engage. And so I just have to maybe assume that that's what other people are doing. But uh, to what Rector is saying, I think that that is very true that there is a, there's an important playlist factor in this. And because I don't use Spotify a lot anymore, I don't engage with it in the same way. Um, because Spotify more than other streaming services really like it really, really is built on the playlist. Um, I started using Apple music recently and um, I don't know if this is just because I'm predisposed to not using playlists in, in kind of their, uh, their, in the way they're intended to be. Uh, I don't go to them. I never use them really. Um, and so with Spotify, I didn't really use them, but I just, I recall like playlists on Spotify being so front and center to the interface, right? Like you open up the app and it's like fucking chill vibes, relax, studying, like classical bliss, whatever. And so, um, yeah, there is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of EDM that could make it into a number of Spotify playlists, number of popular Spotify playlists. Um, 
and I guess the same with uh, the same with you know some of these um, this orchestral Hollywood show tunes music you know could make it into like your life is a movie playlist which is like a real playlist by the way that's an actual playlist on Spotify um, I don't know if it's hugely popular but it's definitely one I took a screenshot of when I saw it um, so. Yeah, it's it's really hard to separate this out, and it's it's something that that you know could be looked into on its own. Is is uh, are these are are songs from these genres more commonly in popular playlists than than other songs? Yeah, definitely. On the other end of the ratio is metal and K-pop, which, if you look at it both in the aggregate and you look at it in 10 increment bins from 30 to 40 popularity, 40 to 50 popularity, and so on. No matter how you look at it, K-pop and metal are the genres that command the highest ratio. Um, K-pop is a little bit more self-explanatory, or at least it seems like it should be a little bit more self-explanatory than metal in that you know, K-pop fans have just developed a reputation for uh, totally untethered fanaticism, which, you know, the whole Korean pop machine is is designed to cultivate kind of from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, you could look at nothing but the behavior of, of BTS fans on Twitter and this result would make sense, right? You just kind of assume that... Um, that uh, you know, K-pop K-pop stands for other groups would behave similarly, um, and then with with metal, um, the assumption there is that uh, metal just has a uh, you know it has a, a, a tradition and a reputation of having a um, you know it has always held itself kind of as the anti-pop. Um, whether or not it is, you know, made true on that promise forever is, uh, is you know, up for debate. Um, I should actually cut that part out. Whether or not it's made true on that depends, you know, on on the particular group. Um, but you know, the the most, and I, I say this in the post, that the most um, the most kind of extreme instance of its of its uh, of it, of its kind of group cohesion. Um, were the uh, you know the murders in Norway during the early Norwegian black metal scene, um, in which there you know people were uh, quite literally practicing you know something akin to ritual sacrifice to uh, to sort of tighten the the bonds within a scene. Um, I'm not you know that for the most part metal fans uh, of which I am one, however passively don't kill people, but you would not see that with uh, show tunes. And there's a reason for that. Um, and it's because the, the kind of the, the, the group dynamic doesn't really exist there. So I would assume that, um, or you could, you could argue that this is the reason that metal shows up is that it has always been something that, um, that at least that tries to, cultivate an active rather than passive mode of, of listening uh, or, or mode of engagement. Um, and that, yeah, there aren't, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of music, like if we take 
your hypothesis, or, or rather the, the idea you brought up that EDM is has a low ratio because it's in a lot of playlists. It's hard for me to think of people listening to a lot of metal playlists, right? Like metal is just not a kind of music that lends itself to the Spotify playlist. Even if you had like a, uh, you know, whatever, like awful title, uh, like some poor Spotify, uh, like playlist namer would give it like, you know, enter metal mode or whatever the thing is they call it. It's hard to ever imagine someone who listens to metal listening to that playlist, right? So I would think that the way that metalheads listen to Spotify to the extent they do is just not quite in the way Spotify has designed itself to be listened, right? Which is as a primarily, we go into this in the Bandcamp piece on components, primarily as this kind of, uh, you know, this, this increasingly this mood modulating background music is something that is anathema to the whole idea of metal. Um, and so it could partly be because of who, you know, the way people relate to metal. It could be because of the way they listen to metal. Um, but it makes sense to me that it's not, if nothing else, it makes sense to me that it's not on the low end of this, of these results. Yeah. And also metal is just, it's so much album based. Right. It's such a sort of like narrative. Exactly. An album just doesn't make sense to split it up into a playlist. Yeah. Like it's really hard to imagine listening to like one, like sun track followed by like one completely unrelated track that's joined together by the algorithm. It, 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 again, it's, it's out of sync with, I think how metal presents itself and, and how people generally listen to it. Okay. So if we were to, to draw some actionable takeaways, what would those be? Like, how do we interpret Spotify follower ratio? Is it totally context dependent? Is it totally uninformative? Or do we just not have enough information yet? I think that at the very least, it is good to be wary of looking at any given ratio in an isolated moment because the ratio is subject to too many inputs and too many variables. It could be a fluke. It could be because of something that um, is unaccounted for. Um, and so that to me is the, the biggest actionable takeaway is if you see a high ratio for a given artist, you, it's, it's far from conclusive. Um, and that these ratios, these ratios should be looked at more holistically in terms of how they are over time. Um, you know, if they are associated with, if, if they make sense, I guess I would say I don't really, um, I don't really know because they are so, because a high ratio can be qualified by so many things. I don't know if we have a good enough idea of what they mean to do anything with it. Like, if I were, you know, if I were an A&R person and I decided that fandom or followers or however you want to conceive of it was important in whoever I signed, would I look at the follower ratio? And you would think that the answer would be yes. Like, of course you would look at the follower ratio. This is the perfect metric of what to look at. 
and yet it is it, it it's it, it, the ratio is so whimsical that it could and it can mean so many different things that I as a hypothetical A and R person probably would not be able to reasonably do that. I think that the best there's there's two things I'll say about this. Insofar as this sort of fandom hypothesis, this idea of fandom is centered in the music business or in the cultural economy, I think that you know there are other metrics that are ultimately probably more important to look at, like social media following, uh, social media engagement. Um, you know, it would be super interesting to look at whether there's any uh, whether there's any meaningful difference in the followers versus you know on on Instagram versus likes on Instagram. See how that how that uh, what the kind of economic consequence of that is, if any. You could argue that those follower numbers require a bit more intentionality than um, than the Spotify than clicking of the Spotify button on an app you're kind of already in. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's even sensible. It's possible that that's true though. I guess the point is like, just as, you know, just, just as we were saying about metal, metal has a super high follower ratio, right? Does that mean A&R people should go sign only metal and K-pop groups from now on? Like the answer is no, right? They're not doing that because this number by itself it's contextualized by so many things that you can't just look at it. What I will say, though, is that the only reason we even really have to think about this, to think about fandom, follower ratios, and so on, is because the music business has chosen the 2006 Spotify choice. And if they had chosen the In Rainbows Pay What You Want choice, this would be a really straightforward answer. What do they have to pay attention to? Well, whatever artists people are paying the most money to, right? And because we simply don't have an option for that in the dominant economic model, we have to kind of do backflips to figure out what metrics to look at and how they're going to be monetized. And if you can connect A with Y and, and so on. And I think this is, to me, the, the most actionable insight here is that it clarifies one of the weaknesses of that model. Um, and I really think adds new imperative to the entire industry re-examining this choice, at least the, uh, at least the, the sort of like wholesale complete embrace of this one streaming model um, at the expense of another that makes questions like this really, really easy to answer. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Andrew. Is there a way for, well, first of all, where can people read your article? Um, so you can go to components.one. Um, a lot of people think we're called components one, but it was just the uh, only domain uh, with components available. And that's why it's components.one along with like xbox.one and like all these crypto things. And then there's just like us. Um, so you can go to components.one to read the uh, stuff I've been talking about. Um, and 
there's no, there actually is a components Twitter, but it's just like experimental Twitter bots that like nobody should look at. It's just like us screwing around. Um, so you're more than free to follow me on Twitter at uh, AS Thompson. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.